Okay, so as we just read, uh, this morning we are starting a series in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And, and in, in setting out on this territory, uh, we are entering into, in many ways, like holy ground. What I mean by this is for very much a long time, I think since like Romans was written, uh, people have called Romans the greatest chapter, Romans 8 in particular, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Like, I don't know if we're allowed to pick favorites in the Bible, it's, if it's all the inspired word of God, but just what's going on in Romans 8, people go, man, there's something unique there. It's been called like the inner sanctuary of the Christian faith, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, the great mountain vista of the horizon of Scripture. The author and writer Dallas Willard recommended that every Christian memorize all of Romans chapter 8. Out of the whole book of the Bible, he's like, man, this is the one to focus in on. And the beauty, the splendor of this chapter is its highlight and its focus on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what is the ordinary life that is expected and given to those who are, as the repeated phrase goes, in Christ. And central, prominent to the flow of Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. More than any, if you get like a heat map of the use of Holy Spirit in Scripture, you would find all of it located on, falling in on the, the hot spot of Holy Spirit stuff is on Romans chapter 8. The second following place is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where, like we just talked about with tongues, the, the gifts of the Spirit at work, that's, that's number two. But number one of the use of, the, of all of this Holy Spirit language appears not in a text about spiritual gifts, not in a text about excuse me, worship, in a text about, a passage about the ordinary Christian life. So just simply, just to identify, before we even get into the text today, the life that the Spirit gives, a life that is empowered and filled by God's empowering personal presence, is not something set alone for the quote-unquote saints, something set aside for like the hyper-spiritual people or the charismatics. Life indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit is the ordinary life of the Christian. That's what Romans 8 is all about. And so central to what Romans 8 is getting at, the greatest chapter of the Bible is all about the ordinary Christian life and what happens when that is empowered and filled and held together and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we're moving today because like we've just talked about, we're coming out of part one of our series more, Waiting on the Holy Spirit, where we developed an understanding and a passion and a hunger for God's personal presence within us as individuals, but also as a community. And like in an incredible work of God that was beyond anything that like any of us could connive, God has just showed up and done a work in our community. And, and so now we're on the other side of that and we're like, where do we go from here and part two is really walking by the Holy Spirit. How do we carry and bring what God's been doing in our community and in our church into an ongoing life? You're like ordinary walking and waking and breakfast and coffee and going to work and discipleship group and neighborhood dinner. How do I get all of that to be an outflow of what God wants to do? That's what more part two is going to be all about. And Romans chapter eight is just verse by verse is we're going to walk through and see how that, that comes out. But like I said, Romans chapter 8, being the greatest chapter of the Bible, um, I, I, it's, it's holy ground we're walking into. And so for me as a preacher, it's, it's just terrifying. 
Because you're like, you know, don't, don't screw it up. Like, don't, like, don't beef Romans chapter 8, dude. Like, that's what I'm terrified of doing. So I'm going to pray for myself, and you guys can pray for me um, that, uh, that, that I, wouldn't, I wouldn't miff it. Um, God, Father, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our community. Um, I'm just so grateful even just to hear from Hayden is just one little sampling um, these little evidences of grace, of, of how you've been moving in our church. And God, we, I, we're just, as much as we need to hear about the historicity of our faith, um, about the history, like the, the logic of the resurrection, the, the basis of, of believing in the resurrection, giving our lives to it, as much as we need all that, God, we need, we need an experience of you. God, we need our hearts warmed, we needed the experience that you are presently with us, that the good news of the gospel is not simply that Jesus rose, or Jesus died and rose, but that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, and that you are present with us through that. And so as we enter into Romans chapter 8, God, I, I just want to be faithful to what, what you've inspired. Father, I just pray that you would help this morning in these first four verses set a framework for the life in the spirit that is beyond what maybe many of us even imagined coming in today. Jesus, help us. In your name we pray. Amen. So back to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You'll see it behind me, but Paul opens with this first announcement or assurance of no condemnation. Even more than that, you see the no condemnation language, but also right there at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 8 is that therefore, or so, or so then. The whole thing I'm calling out here is we are entering into an ongoing train of thought. Um, Romans chapter 8, before 8 comes 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and, and 7, we're entering into this line of thought about condemnation that this therefore so then is coming out of that is worth identifying because we, we can't understand what he's on about, talking about no condemnation, until we, well, what's the condemnation thing that you're talking about, Paul? So Paul specifically in ver chapters 5, 6, and 7 has been detailing for us his experience of the human condition. Like, what does it mean to be a, a person versus a dog or a cat or a llama? What does it mean to be a human being? And what he focuses at in particular is that there seems to be something snapped, bent, and broken within humanity. He sees it within himself, and he also sees it outward in his friends and family members and people all over the world, that there's just something askew within us. This, just listen to his language from the preceding chapter, Romans chapter 7. He says this, For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not do what I want to do, but I do what I hate. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I do the bad that I do not want to do. And then he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? So just whatever Paul's talking about, when we get to this language of condemnation, it begins with Paul's talking about the human inability to like understand ourselves. The mess of desires and wills and wants and commitments and actions and thoughts and deeds that you just look over the thing that is Ryan and it's a giant spaghetti mess of all of these intentions and desires and I don't know what to do with any of that. Because when I look inward at myself, I find certain desires that are good, but then when I look outward at my thoughts or my words or my actions, I'm doing the very thing that inwardly I don't want to do. 
or vice versa, the very thing that I say is wrong and I don't want to be that kind of a person, that's the very thing I keep going on doing. I don't understand myself. And this is not an entirely religious framework. Everybody, regardless of your religious bent, wherever you are on the spectrum and your relationship to any God today, you, you identify with this. There's certain things that you want to be. You don't want to be like your parents and what keeps happening. You cannot help it, can you? You, 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 you relate in so many different ways. You have, we have explosive bouts of anger where we say or do things that we immediately regret. Where does that come from? You have this pride where you continually, in moments of clarity, you see, man, I look down on, I genuinely do think that I'm better than everyone. These moments of clarity, but then we, you push that away. What's going on there? Like an unrestrained greed or envy, you're constantly pursuing more and more. And, and when you stop and shut up long enough and you're awake in bed at night, you're just thinking, like, am I ever going to be content? with what I have. And so you make the commitment that like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live with content. I'm gonna sell the house. I'm gonna, I'm gonna whatever. I'm gonna, or, you know what he owns. You're like, you know what I'm saying. Like we're gonna, I'm gonna give away all this stuff, right? You make the commitment to do all this stuff. And then you wake up and by Tuesday, you're, you're back in the same path, right? We all identify with this. There's an addiction that each of us carry. And it may not be simply for substances or for alcohol or porn or whatever it may be. That's totally an explicit version of this. But all of us have these behaviors, these ways of thinking that we don't want to be that way. And yet we keep doing them. You keep going back to them. And so it's your perfectionism. It's your, your, your absolute worship of your job. Your strained and shattered relationships. You just look back over your life and there's relationship after relationship after relationship that you may, when public, talk about how it was, it was you know, a mutual separation or whatever, but you look back and you're like, I know that was full well my fault. You look back on, on not just the abuse that you've incurred, but the abuse that you've given, the ways that you've talked to people. Like you just, none of these things on paper do we go, these things are good, do we justify or would we defend them? And yet we find ourselves time and again, like Paul says, I don't understand myself. You see, what Paul's getting at here is, uh, it's an apocryphal story, but a story all the same, of Sir Isaac Newton and his discovery of gravity. It's just the discovery of the law of gravity is the language that we use. And, and you got Sir Isaac Newton there sitting there, you know, underneath the tree. And what happens in the story? Apple falls, hits him on the head, and he goes, oh, he discovers gravity, right? As though, like, gravity wasn't there until the moment that the apple fell, what Paul's doing in Romans 5, 6, and 7, to use the language he's going to use in chapter 8, verse 2, is in the same way that Isaac Newton, quote, you know, discovers the law of gravity, what Paul sees within himself and within this world is what he calls the law of sin and death. The law not being that there's some kind of written command, you know, the Ten Commandments of sin and death, but the law in the sense of a principle, the law in the sense of a power, the law in the sense of the way that we talk about gravity, there is a gravitational pull in the human heart that is directed towards sin as its primary emphasis and expression and ultimately with the direction being the ground that it's pulled towards being death. See, what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7 is not 
You know, if we got Sir Isaac Newton over here is dealing with physics and the laws of physics, Paul is giving us one of these bedrock laws of metaphysics, the stuff going on within the human heart and soul. And he identifies within us, why can't you do what you want to do? You make resolutions every single year, and here we are. You, you, you have seen the explosion of, of the same kinds of behavior where it's gone poorly for people, and yet we fall into the same thing. What's going on? Paul says, like the apple getting pulled down from the tree, there's something within us that we just, as much as we don't want to do it, it falls down into what Paul calls sin and death. And so this is then, here's the, this is the background now. When we get to verse 1 of chapter 8, when Paul says, there is now no condemnation. This is, what, this is what he's talking about. Condemnation, not as you know, the, the, the overflow of a vengeful God, but condemnation as God's heartbroken honoring of our chosen way of being. The language that Paul uses regularly in Romans is the language that God handed us over to these things. If that's what you want, okay. And see, the horror of condemnation is that we choose it for ourselves. As much as we may not want it, as much as we may hate it, at the same time, we've just, this is the be- our bed and we're going to sleep in it. C.S. Lewis writes, you see behind me, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all these innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that's in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. There's a law of gravity that's pulling us, and as much as we have this decision-making faculty, it seems as though our decision-making is locked in on sin and death. Or as C.S. Lewis writes more profoundly, hell is locked from the inside. This direction that we take ourselves into, as much as we may hate it, it's our bed. We've, We've made ourselves home in it. We found a comfortability here, and this is, this is I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm describing addiction, and I'm just simply pulling the scope out to include all of humanity. That at some level, all of us have some patterns and habits and rhythms and ways of being that are fundamentally destructive to ourselves and to the world around us, and ultimately to our relationship with God, who is life himself. And we choose this. And so condemnation is God's, to our me saying over and over again in my life with my innumerable choices and decisions, my will be done, my will be done, my will be done. Condemnation is God's simple answer. Okay, your will be done. And what's fascinating here, what Paul's inviting us into in Romans chapter 8, to go back to C.S. Lewis's quote here, is that the first turning of the dial that moves us away from the hellish creature towards what, what C.S. Lewis calls the heavenly is what Paul does at the end of um, chapter 7. If you can go back to that um, first slide from Romans chapter 7. See, all of us would agree at some level we don't understand what we're doing. All of us would, would agree and find ourselves not doing what we want to do. 
and doing what we hate. Most, almost all of us would agree that we are not able to do at all times and all ways the good that we want to do, but we keep on doing the bad that we don't want to do. But the main turning point of the whole story is when we get to the end of our rope and we finally identify and we quit playing around and we start asking questions about who's going to rescue me from this body of death where we quit pretending that we've got it within our own strength to finally pull ourselves and our bootstraps up out of this thing, and we start appealing to someone or something outside of ourselves to do something about it. And we can look a lot of places, but this is where Paul's no condemnation is absolutely fantastic. You can go to where he continues here in verse 1. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 1, chapter 8. Therefore, so then... In the midst of my question asking who will deliver me from the law of sin and death, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So just entryway in, no matter whatever's going on with the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is the breaking point from that past way of being. I'm going to detail this more in just a moment, but this is where Paul goes. The answer to who will deliver me from the body of death, who will break this cycle of addiction to not doing what I want to do and I keep doing the things I don't want to, In Christ Jesus, there's a liberation front that is broken in, a new possibility and a new movement of now no condemnation, none. And man, if you are the kind of person to like note in your Bible and you have a physical one because you're really spiritual, you just circle over and over and again that little three-letter adverb, now. Now. There is therefore now no condemnation. I, I was tempted to do a whole sermon on this three-letter word, and so you're gonna try to, I'm going to try to pack it all into one moment. Y'all, this, this three-letter adverb contains the full weight and the glory and the beauty of the Christian experience. And it is also what separates Christianity from any other way of living, both religious or otherwise. You see, you've got all kinds of different ways of dealing with what we, you may not call it sin, but the proverbial brokenness of the human nature. You, we've all got differing pathways of how to get out of it, but all of them are offered with the language of if or when. There will be now no condemnation if you, do, 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 do. There will be no condemnation when you, possibly, if you, do, 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 do. And the gift of Christianity, the insanity of the Christianity, is that you are not handed an if or when as the answer to condemnation. You're given a now, present tense. Now no condemnation. Now no condemnation. Not when, not if. Those, those will crush you. Now. Present tense, you, here, your butt in this room on Sunday morning. I have no idea what your Saturday held or the past week held. Now, present tense. This might have been your holiest week, and it might have been your worst week when it comes to you in some way being the human that you know you ought to be. And yet, Romans chapter 8, why is it the greatest chapter of the Bible? Because of this three-letter adverb, now. The Christian life is lived out of the now of no condemnation. Like you, you got to hear this. For some of you, you don't identify as a Christian, and like you, I want you to hear this so much. For some of you, you've had your, you've been a part of a church, you've been a part of our church for years, and yet this hasn't gotten into your head. And so here's just one more opportunity for the truth to break into your mind. There is now present tense, no condemnation. You're not trying to earn something. There was not a state of no condemnation that you are in, and now you've got to keep up with. Now present tense, no condemnation. 
the law of sin and death, the gravitational pull and the direction and trajectory of what that leads to has been defeated and broken. Like the, the prison door has been broken. Like this is what is now present tense going on within, as he says, Christ. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation now. So how is, how is Paul able to promise this to us? He continues in verse 2. How is there now no condemnation, Paul? He says, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So once again, we're not talking in law here about written commands or anything. We're talking about principle. Think law of gravity is really, I think, the best way to frame this. What he's saying is there has been a liberation work, a freedom work, that the physics of the soul have been upended and turned around. I think of like dumb video game puzzles where you can like switch gravity in a room. This is, I'm sorry, like this is just Ryan's illustrations of what works for me. There's like certain puzzles where you're trying to work stuff up and there's stuff on the ceiling and stuff down here and you hit a switch and the gravity of the room shifts. Like that's what Paul's getting at is like what has happened here. That formerly there was the law of sin and death, a gravitational pull on your soul in the direction of sin and death. And he is saying in Christ... The switch has been flipped, and there is now a new gravitational pull and trajectory and movement of the human heart that no longer moves towards sin and death, but now leads towards the spirit and life. He says the, the, the flip has been switched. There has been an event. There has been a moment that why this is now is this has happened for those in Christ. You find your desires start changing. You start finding your wants start making a little bit more sense. You start situating things in a new way, in a new order, in a new place. And you find yourself that you, yes, still struggle, but you find yourself doing the things that you do want to do. Because now it's no longer sin that's pulling on your heart. It's now the Spirit pulling you out of sin. And so Paul says this, this is what's going on. There's a new gravitational pull in the believer's heart. There's a new trajectory. There's a new orbit. There is a new law of metaphysics going on within the heart. But how does this happen? How has this freedom taken place? Verse three, he says, for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. So we'll stop here before we continue. So just notice first what Paul is getting at is when now I'm kind of frustrated with him because he, he keeps mixing this metaphor of the law. Because um, so the first two, when you talk about the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit and life, he's clearly talking about like the principal gravitational pull stuff. But now he comes over to talk about the law. And what he's doing here is, you know, think 10 commandments. Think the 613 commandments of, of the Old Testament. Think Jesus' summary statement of them that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And what, what Paul says here is, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, as we may hear, love God with all that I am and love my neighbor as myself. And I may say, totally, that sounds great. That's the kind of person I want to be. And yet what he says is, the law is not bad. That's a, that's a great command. The problem is, is that the human flesh, not our physical bodies, but like the human nature part of us is weak to actually do that. So he says, notice, the law could not do that. And, and, and by what this he means, we could not do that. And, and then there's just those two little words there, God did. 
what we could not do, to be a human fully as we are made to be in the life that we are made for, to be that kind of a human being, we could not do that. And so God stepped into the story and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The means through which he does this, he, con- he continues, is by saying he condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. We come to the cross, we come to the center point of the Christian faith right here. As great news as the now no condemnation is, this is the basis of why it's now and not later. So just to break this down, first, he says he condemned sin. First, God condemned sin. He did not sweep our situation under the rug, both the things that we've done, but also the things that have been done to us. There is nothing worse than sharing the pain of what has been done to you and having someone downplay it. There's nothing worse than sharing an abuse that you've incurred and having someone downplay it. And God is is not going to do that with what's been done to you, but also not what you've done to others. He condemns sin for sin. He says he does this in the flesh. Instead of dealing with sin as an outward, distant problem, God got involved within the human story itself, right at the heart where all the problem is, which is in the human heart. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase when he says he condemns sin in the flesh, he translated it as um, God went straight for the jugular. Like he, he dealt with the problem at its source. Like, thanks, Eugene. We, he dealt with the problem straight at its source. What, what is the primary problem within all of this? We've just talked about it. Is the mess that's going on within your little human heart. And so the only way for God to bring you out of that is to deal with it at the source of, of what it means to be human. And so the way he did this was by sending his son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, Paul's walking a tightrope here on a, with a brief theology of the incarnation. Because what Paul's doing here is a tightrope walk to talk about the reality that was God in Christ. Because to see, he just, he's being so specific with his words. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For him to say just simply in the likeness of flesh would lead us to believe that Jesus wasn't fully human. If if he just said he sent his son in the likeness of of human flesh, we'd go, oh, then Jesus was just pretending to be a human being, some kind of spiritual being that was wearing like a human mask, right? But that's uniquely not what's happening within, within Jesus. But similarly, for him to drop likeness and just to say by sending his son in sinful flesh, then it would lead us to believe that that Jesus was so human that he actually participated in some of the same law of sin and death stuff that we have. So Paul's trying to find this, how do I, how does, he's like, how do I talk about the fact that Jesus was fully human and yet was without sin? And in doing so was not less human than any of us, but actually more human than all of us because of the fact that he's without sin. There's so many of us that we think to be human and and for us to move in the direction of holiness or righteousness makes us less human. The whole argument of the scriptures is as you grow in holiness and righteousness, you're actually more human than before. And the further away you are from that, it's actually the more animalistic and the more beastly you become. And so what he's trying to speak to is the incarnation of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? How did he deal with it at its source? By entering into it, by being fully human, being in human flesh with us in the midst of our story, and yet not being bound and pulled down by the law of sin and death. He was not a victim to it like the rest of us, which sets him up then for the incredible nature of the final three, four words, that he came and gave himself as a sin offering. 
When Paul looks at the horror of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when he looks at the cross, Paul sees this dynamic offering interchange work that's happening here. That the one who came and was not pulled down, the one who was, was unbound from the law of sin and death, gave himself over to its gravitational pull. And like a black hole or a whirlpool on Good Friday, the Son of God allowed all of sin, all of death, to pull himself into himself and allow it to kill him. Allowed it to exhaust its energy and its power on him. And then on Easter Sunday, when he resurrects and returns from the grave, he leaves those things dead with him. He pulled them into his flesh and allowed his flesh to die. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, all that stuff got left behind and dead in the grave. And in taking that from us, he gives us the spirit and life. This is language of, of, of interchange, of taking something from one person and giving them what belongs to you. Language of substitutionary sacrifice, as it can be called. N.T. Wright writes, I, I love his last name because you get to do that. In Jesus' death, the condemnation that sin deserved was made it out finally and fully so that sinners over whose heads that condemnation had hung might be freed, liberated from this threat once and for all. All of that condemnation, all of the law of sin and death came into Jesus, took it, and when he was crucified, it was though that, those very powers were being crucified themselves. It emptied itself. And when he rose from the third, then there's a new way to be human now. In Jesus, we see this new way to be human that's no longer bound by sin and death, but now being led by the spirit and life. Now, this language of substitutionary sacrifice has been, um, well, just some of it, we think of it as weird. We don't, do a, we don't think we do a lot of substitutionary sacrifice other than like maybe like war movies or whatever. We don't really get the framework for it. So, so it feels weird, archaic. Even some people would label this as medieval. But just, just all transforming love is substitutionary sacrifice. All transforming love is substitutionary sacrifice. The late Tim Keller writes, all love, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. You have never loved a broken person. You've never loved a guilty person. You've never loved a hurting person except through substitutionary sacrifice. Love is defined as its fullness, not as the feelings that you have or the warmth that you feel. Love is defined as the action of you giving up yourself to take on someone else. And so you... You know this, the moments when you have been able to give the deepest moments of love to someone else have been when you have enacted substitutionary sacrifice. And the most transforming moments of love that you've experienced from others has been when they stepped into your place and they took on themselves what you were carrying so that you might breathe just a little bit more in that moment. It's just baked into what it means to be human. Just consider, to take it out of legal kind of substitutionary language, just consider what's happening when the mom wakes up in the middle of the night with her newborn. What's happening in this moment? Is there in the crib or the bassinet is you have the little baby who is in a state of sleeplessness and hunger. Cannot sleep and is hungry. And what the mom does is she's in her place of sleep. She's doing great up until that baby starts crying. And she wakes up and she enters into and actually takes the sleeplessness of her child she takes on the time not sleeping anymore. And actually, anyone, you know, I haven't breastfed, but I'm married to one who has. 
but also what happens when you, what, like, you get hungry yourself. In giving that to the child, you get hungry yourself. Like, central to the human story is substitutionary sacrifice. The mother who enters into the sleeplessness and hunger of her child, feeding and allowing her child to sleep. It's substitutionary sacrifice. It's interchange. Every story, every game, every book, every movie that is worthwhile, and it doesn't just happen in the military or the superhero movies. It happens in the sweet and the tender moments like the breastfeeding mother. All of these stories that mean the most to us are stories of, of the, the transformation that comes through substitutionary sacrifice, that comes through interchange. When someone enters into the pain and the difficulty, the loss of another, and carries that burden for them so that they might breathe a little bit better. And so all of these stories keep telling it because we have baked into us this thing, this idea that's called the image of God. We can't help but value substitutionary sacrifice. We can't help but live it. It's this hangover of God that still resides within us. And the whole promise of what's going on within the cross is that that thing that, that we keep seeing, the thing that we keep getting little tastes of and the way that we give it to others or the way that we receive it from others is, is all at the center point of history, the fact that God has done that for humanity. He's done that for you. He was the one who, God is spirit. God is life. And he set aside and actually gave those things to you and me as he took our sin and death. And so this, this, is, this is not just what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. This is what we're talking about when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. This, not as a theological idea that you check a box on, oh yeah, substitutionary atonement, penal substitute, you know, I've got all that checked off, but as an ongoing experience. And the spirit is how that interchange gets played out in your personal life. Watch what he does in verse 4. So God did all of this, the gospel. God sent his son to die in our place for our sins, to free us from the law and sin and death in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. So God in Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself so that through God, you can do what you previously could not do for yourself. The law's requirement, what is that? To love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourself, to grow in that sort of life shaped by a love that is defined by substitutionary sacrifice. That's what it looks like to have the law fulfilled in us. And that comes now, not as us trying to earn no condemnation, but as, as a result of us having it. And this is what Paul identifies in names as us walking according to the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit is simply you getting used to your no condemnation. Walking according to the Spirit, walking in what greater obedience, whatever language you want to use, fulfillment of the law, is just you realizing just how forgiven you actually are. Just how saved you actually are. As one theologian puts it, sanctification is simply the art of getting used to our justification. Big words that make, us, make me sound smart, but I couldn't. Sanctification, the process of us fulfilling the law and becoming more and more who God made us to be is simply the art of us getting used to who Jesus has made us through his cross. 
And so the life of the Spirit, hear me, is about living into the now that's already true. If, if we move into this series and you believe that, that salvation and no condemnation is going to come through you walking by the Spirit, you've got it all turned around. Walking by the Spirit is what we do because all of that has already happened. And so how do we, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit then? Because that seems maybe esoteric for some of us or up and over. This is where we're just going for the next couple of weeks as we go through Romans 8. As when Paul talks about what it means for us to walk by the Spirit, is next week he talks about it first begins with setting our mind on the Spirit, shifting our attention to be on the one who has done all of this work for us. Next, Paul's going to talk about how we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. No longer doubling down on, on the flesh and our strength and trying to push down. He says, as we just open ourselves to receive what God is doing within us, we find that these parts of us that we never seem to have any control over begin to wither up and die. Next, being led by the Spirit is what it means to walk by the Spirit. We just are allow, it's, we're giving ourselves over to the gravitational pull of the Spirit in our lives. Walking by the Spirit comes as we know the fatherhood of God by the Spirit. That We realize what it means that we've been adopted by God and now relate to God as Abba, as Papa, as Dad. This comes as we hope in the Spirit. We set our eyes on the full trajectory of where this gravitational pull of life is taking us. And then praying in the Spirit, developing a deep intimacy where we bring our lives before. Like This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is what it means to experience no condemnation in your life. This is what it means for the now of the gospel to just to begin to bloom and show up, not just in theology, but in experience, in experience. And so as we close, one closing story that I've been thinking about all week. In John chapter 8, Jesus is going about just a normal day in the life of Jesus, you know, whatever, everything that entails, miracles, healing, you know, walking on water, just normal Jesus stuff. And... Uh, in the middle of the day there, while he's teaching, the religious leaders drag before him this woman who's been caught in adultery. And the whole situation is uh, sketchy at best. How did they find this woman? They weren't committing adultery in public. So there must have been some kind of them watching and looking at the spot, like knowing that they were going to catch her in the act. And where's the man that was involved in this? They dragged just the woman. And so they drag this, this woman before Jesus, likely barely clothed, if clothed at all, caught in adultery, grab and throw her down at Jesus' feet. And he says, she has not lived up to the righteous requirements of the law. This is sin. This is death. And Jesus begins to have a conversation about the universality of the condemnation that we all stand under. Jesus doesn't say, no condemnation. Your guys is archaic sexual mores. Get those out of here. Like, she's free. Were they both consenting? It's fine. Like, Jesus doesn't play that game. He upholds that there is some truth and value to the law of God, but at the same time goes, man, if you guys have gotten into the position of thinking that you've got it all figured out and she's the one that's a mess, you've just got another thing coming. Those of you without sin, you, you can be the first to throw the stone. And one by one, these religious leaders walk away. And as the space gets silent, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks around and sees that no one's there, and she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus' response is, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. I keep thinking about verse 11 and how so many of us have a Christianity that 
is underformed because it, it's built around one half of Jesus' words here. So most of us, we come and we relate to the church, we relate to the Christian faith, largely believing that go and from now on sin, do not sin anymore, is largely what this whole thing is about. And it, and it crushes you, doesn't it? It's destructive. It actually plays into the law of sin and death. It drags us even deeper. And the more that we place all of these laws on ourselves and the more that we don't live up to them and then the more that we shame ourselves for not doing it, the more that we need some kind of outlet for our shame. And so we go and we do something again that brings us right back to where we are. Go on and, and sin no more is destructive if said by itself. But there's so many of us that have grown up under that message. Simultaneously, so many of us running away from that kind of church context have taken on the other for the first half alone. There's no condemnation. I don't, Jesus doesn't condemn. And so we believe that whatever God must be in his love must be so gracious, gracious to the point that he's just looking at humanity going, you guys are a mess and it's fine. Everything's fine. Sweep it under the rug. As long as you're happy and you're not too troubled, that's gonna be great. And for most of us, specifically as, as comfy, cushy Westerners who don't realize the damage that true injustice does in the world, we take that and, we, and that, that, that we go with a season where that's great, that's fine. But what we end up finding is that the law of sin and death is still the law of sin and death. We still find ourselves dragged into patterns and pathways and rhythms where it leaves us screaming out for some kind of freedom from all of this. And then we somehow blame God as if his forgiveness was that he just wasn't forgiving enough. I, true Christianity, what it means to walk in the Spirit is to hear no condemnation, walk in the Spirit. To hear, neither do I condemn you, from now on go and sin no more. As long as you separate these two, Christianity will always crush you, one way or another. And really, it's not Christianity at that point. It's not the words of Jesus. Walking by the Spirit the movement of where we're trying to go as a church as we continue in what the Spirit has been doing is when we begin to experience no condemnation, not as justification or defense for anything going on in here, but as the power that propels us into another way of living. Step by step, we end up finding that the very things that we couldn't do just a few years ago are the things that are coming naturally to us now. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit.